Welcome to Couch Convo's Centric Biz and Tech Talks. This is John Cackley, and today I'm talking with Deb Peluso and Hillary Lee about how company culture impacts business outcomes. In addition, teaming up with me to facilitate the discussion is Narendra Sundaram. Hill and Deb, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. And wanted to start off before we dive into our more formal questions with just sort of a little bit of an exercise about how our thinking process, how our personal culture impacts how we solve problems. So do either of you, you do Wordle? Deb's a no, Hill's a no. You know no. how it works, though? I, I have heard so much about it, and people love it, but I have not I have not done it because I get worried I'll, I'll just get sucked in. <laughs> well, you can only do one a day, so it's not that big of a deal. But do you both know how it works? No, I, I, I've avoided it for the same reasons that Hill has mentioned. <laughs> okay, so not trying to be a, a word game pusher here, you know, the first one's free. But anyway, the, the way it works is you're trying to guess a five-letter English word. You have six guesses. On every guess, you get feedback. It's like the old mastermind game, which you might remember, where you'll get an indicator of a letter is in the word but not in the correct place, or it's in the word and in the correct place, or it's just not in the word. And so there are different approaches that people can take to it. So my wife and I usually do it both at the same time, but we have different strategies. For instance, I talked to a colleague at the spring meeting, and the way she approached it was entirely letter frequency, right? You use words that have the most common letters first thing off because, well, guess what? She's in data and analytics, so she was taking a very analytical approach to it. So from what I've described, I mean, how do you think you would approach this? How would you approach trying to guess a, a five-letter word? You know, that strategy that you just talked about is probably something that I would do. Years of watching Wheel of Fortune, right? What uh -huh. are the most commonly used uh, right. letters? So I'd probably start there. <laughs> I, I think I would I would say the same. I, I'd probably be like, you know, can I buy a vowel? Can I get an E? Maybe an A? Yeah, that's probably what, what, what the approach I would take as well. Okay, so. both fairly analytical answers. I think two of the most well, to me, the best words to start with are stare, S-T-A-R-E, or stern, S-T-E-R-N. But, you know, that gets boring. So what I do is I'll often come up with something else. Like I like audio because you get to check off almost all the vowels. Hmm, good strategy. Uh, but anyway, that's just – and, and it's in English. Yeah, it's, they have to be English words. Yep. It, it's all – okay, okay. I wasn't yeah. sure if you were allowed to change things up. Yeah, and you can't put in a word – something that it doesn't recognize – as a dictionary word, you know, you couldn't just put in A, B, C, D, E, mm -hmm. you know, you have to be guessing legitimate English words. Mm -hmm. so, okay. All right. Okay. So I, that, that a little bit of a bust of a, of an icebreaker, but you see where <laughs> we're going, right there. We, we solve, you can solve problems different ways. You know, it's the same problem, but you approach it, you know, just how you think differently. So in the render, do you do Wordle? Any chance? No. I've done it a few times. I, I feel the same way. I don't, don't want to get in, hooked into it. But the interesting <laughs> thing is now there are so many flavors of it, right? Right. There's like one for music. Like my both my kids are into like they play musical instruments. So there's like specific one for music. So there are different oh. themes of Wordle now, actually. Oh, and there is Quirtle where you try to solve four Wordles at the same time with the same set of guesses. So anyway, okay, we're we're done blowing your mind on uh, on word games, but we'll uh, that'll be a subject of another podcast, I'm sure. I feel very uneducated though, John. Now about these word games, I know. 
pop culture is blowing past me right now. So yes. you're, you're probably doing something much more productive with your time. No. 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 Honey, no? credit, John. <laughs> Come on, I was trying to give you, trying to throw you a line here, but all right, let's uh, let's get rolling here. So, company culture is become a really big thing particularly in American business, I'd say over the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, here at Centric, I think it's, to us, it's, I would consider it one of our, our major differentiators. It's often talked about also as a reflection of employee satisfaction, but let's talk about how culture impacts delivery. That is, you know, the, the things that make up our culture, how do we go accomplish things either internally or really at our clients as a result? Do those elements of culture impact quality, efficiency, productivity. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think so. And and Hill, please jump in here. But I, I think, you know, for me, culture is, it's intangible, but you can find signs of the culture um, as you spend time in an organization. It's, it's manifest itself through how people behave, what they say, but then also kind of the deeper assumptions about shared values and how people think, right? That's, mm -hmm. and that drives the behavior. But I think when people get a sense of culture, that gives them some guidelines about how to behave and how to act and also how to navigate. So it definitely mm -hmm. impacts how people deliver their services to one another, you know, and the subsequent quality, productivity, efficiency, those types of things. It's it's a powerful force. I think it's also one of those things, honestly, John, when we are going into a new client, we always have to learn their culture, right? Mm -hmm. So that we can actually from a, you know, from a, as a management consulting firm, properly deliver the services or the products or whatever we've been asked to do, right? And I think understanding that organization's culture is absolutely critical. It's, and frankly, it, it's, we have to start understanding that really in the sales cycle, right? right? So that we also are understanding what kind of project team can we bring in there? Who are those people from our side, right? Who would be successful in that environment, right? Because we know that to Deb's point, it's it's always there. It's not going to go away. So it's, it's not something that, you know, folks can just kind of check in, check out, right? In terms of the culture, it's it's gonna be forever there. So we wanna make sure that we understand it from a client perspective. So we're actually really setting up all of our teams and our people for the work that they're doing for success. And then on the on the counter side, they, they also have the centric culture that they have to, you know, kind of balance between that, right? Between their kind of their clients and then and then the centric perspective as well. Okay. So mostly what I heard there was a large amount of teamwork and collaboration. If you have mm -hmm. shared values and a positive culture that leads towards that, you at least remove the friction or the inefficiency of a team. You're able to speak the same language on a lot of topics. Mm -hmm. But how about how about sort of more than that? Can, can you break down culture into different elements? I don't know if I've never really seen a taxonomy uh, of company culture. I probably haven't read enough of that. There's a lot of research out there, John, around kind of organizational culture and, mm -hmm. and what those are. You know, and in general, I would say, and kind of the work that I've done around culture, it really kind of shows up around kind of your norms, your beliefs, having a trusted environment, your communications, and kind of how people show up, right? Norms and beliefs, right, are how were you raised, right? What do you believe? So things that are much more kind of deep down, deep rooted 
needed. And then, you know, coming into that, it's going to be around kind of the, the leadership style and their missions and values, right? All of those things are kind of elements that help kind of make up the actual culture itself. And there's tons mm -hmm. of different, uh, I would say, kind of frameworks around what an organization culture is, right? And what's applicable when and that sort of thing. And and then you can kind of figure out, right, if, if a culture is more hierarchical, right, or is more command and control, right, mm -hmm. or is more of an advocacy culture, right? Or there's other terms for it, but one of my favorites is the Wild West, Right. Which is right. is when you kind of see organizations who take agile and kind of go crazy. Right. And there's no guardrails and things just folks are just off and going. I think there's a lot of ways that we can kind of break that down. I know, Deb, I, I know you have an opinion on this. <laughs> I'm nodding my head as you talk, Hill, because I, I think the way you've laid that out is 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 very well done and very clear. And yeah, I mean, there are any number of frameworks that people have created over the year to attempt to describe culture, to measure culture, and to help companies think about the culture they have versus the culture they want. I think the sweet spot is kind of getting past the behavior level and really getting down into fundamentally the core values. And so if, if the company is clear on its core values and then it matches its behavior to those values, the culture will feel congruent. But oftentimes what we hear or see is, you know, it's like the posters on the walls and this is how we work and we're all about this. But when people actually work in that culture, you know, the decision-making processes actually look different or how people are included or not included is different, or it's not appropriate to skip levels and talk to somebody outside of your pay grade. So those are the things that you start to learn subtly, despite what the, you know, sometimes people call them the espoused values and beliefs are. It's how things actually get done and whether you're reinforced or rewarded or sometimes penalized for kind of acting outside of those boundaries. That's the real culture. Right. Could not agree with you more, Deb, because there's there is a difference between what is the culture that we want to convey to our potential future employees, right? Or our suppliers, vendor partners, whatever. And then there's kind of the reality. And it's and it's very interesting because from kind of a, a culture perspective, we all have to kind of actually be able from a centric perspective, be able to kind of diagnose, like, what are we kind of walking into? And I'll, I'll give you an example. We have a client that likes to say that they're very open and they're very agile. And there was a, an employee um, on the on the client side wanted to move up to, to become a CEO and, and had asked, you know, may I get an audience with their CEO to, to kind of ask like about their path and, and this sort of thing. Right. And so, and this, this is exactly kind of to Deb's point around kind of the, the reality versus what they say. And this individual kind of got their, their hands slapped because they are not supposed to reach out to the CEO's admin to try to set up a, a 30 minute call to talk about this. They, they actually learned that they were actually supposed to go through all of the levels to get approvals before they would actually be allowed to reach out to the executive admin for the CEO in this organization. But it was interesting because from a culture perspective, they they want everybody to believe that, you know, you can, I can go reach out to, to have the CEO and that, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So there's absolutely a difference that we have to all basically figure out whenever we're going into an organization right. between the reality and the perception. 
Right. So when we're talking about it here, you know, it's clear just among us that there are certain cultural elements which we perceive as negative and some which we perceive as positive. I'll just throw one out here. Not sure we had total agreement on it, but I'd say among us, among us in the call, pure command and control organization is usually not something that we think is positive because we don't think it's flexible enough or it's respectful enough of an individual, et cetera. We give different reasons for it. But thinking of a few different things like that, are those values, are they, are they absolutes or are there some of these values which work in one place or one industry and don't work in another? Or flip side, do they don't work where we're used to, but hey, there's some place where they work perfectly. I, I struggle with absolutes. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think in 20th and 20th, 21st century business circles, sometimes people say command and control and it has a negative connotation, but you know, the origins of that actually came out of the military and there's there's safety reasons, right? There's reasons that you don't question an order in the heat of battle, right? Right. But I will tell you, I think the at least the U.S. military is one of the most advanced organizations from an organizational science point of view. A lot of our modern thinking around how organizations should work and operate was first created and experimented with in the U.S. Army in particular. So even though that term probably has a military type context um, and they still have a chain of command, their officer corps in particular is extremely well educated on uh, leadership, philosophy, uh, governance, organizational uh, constructs, and they have and continue to experiment with how to actively shape the military and the fighting force needed for the 21st century. So it's interesting, no absolutes, and understanding some of the history of where some of those terms maybe came from is important. I also think, John, you know, the other piece that kind of comes into play for, for me is there's places where, from an industry perspective, there, there does need to be a very control process, right? And we see that in organizations like healthcare, pharmaceutical trial, right, medicine, right? We see that in our government or military or aerospace, any place where safety becomes a factor and really safety of people, right? And right. so that is where I think there are places where that kind of more command and control type of, of culture does actually benefit. But there's, again, there's like, places and times for everything. There's also times when, you know, organizations might be a little bit more that way and maybe that's not actually needed, right? Yeah. For their organization. I mean, I always kind of remind people, right, when they're when it's kind of chicken little the sky is falling, like, hey, do you have somebody on the table today? Like, is there are you are you doing surgery on someone right now? Like <laughs> remain like keep perspective. You know what right. I mean? And I think right. some organizations just kind of sometimes need to do that, you know. Right. It's interesting you mentioned safety or security as a as an item. I had a client years ago that makes aluminum, and there's not much more dangerous to make than aluminum. And so safety was a huge part of their culture. We'd have workshops, and they would start off by telling everyone where the emergency exits were and where we were, where we were supposed to regroup. Now, we were not in an aluminum plant. We were in an office building, but that was part of their culture. But I think an interesting way that it, it comes up into sort of problem solving is I recall we were in a sort of a, an offsite office, wasn't in great shape. And one day a bulletin board fell off the wall. I could do not. Rather than somebody coming and putting the bulletin board back on the wall, they put a safety cone, an orange traffic cone in front of it 
so you wouldn't trip over the bulletin board sitting on the floor. That's great. That's, <laughs> That's powerful. Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there probably needed to be an assessment of the wall to really understand whether that wall could hold that bulletin board. Maybe. I don't know. Right. <laughs> Although we needed an operator qualified technician to rehang yes. it so as not to cause any uh, potential OSHA recordables for exactly. anybody else. That's right. That's right. Although I do have to say, well, that was something that was very safety related and that was very much a, a big concern for that company. It didn't mean the company wouldn't take risks. A project I did with them, we did some of the most remarkable sort of disruptive things in process design, stuff which actually became illegal a few years later. Basically, we removed certain controls from the procurement process, you know, because they were they were unnecessary, right? You order office supplies, who's going to go online and check off, yes, I got my stack of paper, right? No one does it. So we just said, well, let's assume that people got it. If they didn't get it, they're going to call back and ask for it. Right. Nowadays, you couldn't you couldn't do that anymore. Um, Sarbanes-Oxley, that's the word I wanted. Sarbanes-Oxley basically took out the option of doing that, but that was something we were able to do. It was pretty forward thinking and a little bit risk taking, a little bit innovative for an organization that was very hyped on safety. All right. When you think of different culture, and we've talked about a lot of different things, what pieces or what elements of, of a culture do you think have the greatest potential for a positive impact? Ooh, number one for me is leadership behavior. So there's a famous organizational culture expert and his one of his quotes is that leadership and culture are two sides of the same coin. So whatever your leadership model and do or don't do, say or don't say, is the culture that you have. <laughs> so the greatest and most impactful way to shift culture is to change leadership behavior. Okay. <laughs> and I would say the most important element in general for employees across industries and it comes from the leadership behavior is is it an organization of trust and if there is trust in general folks are happy they're doing well they're performing but trust is built from leadership behavior. And so it's, it. I mean, it absolutely stems from that. And so there are times when we've had clients who believe that they have maybe personnel problem and no, actually, you know, we get in and we start doing some digging and digging and actually maybe there's, there's actually some areas where, you know, leadership, the leadership team could could tweak, right? Maybe there's some leadership behaviors or maybe there's specific leaders where things maybe aren't necessarily going as well, right? And all of a sudden, what what could look like I have a personnel issue with my staff is actually not necessarily the case. Not saying all the time, there isn't right. sometimes that, but it absolutely stems from the leaders, how they're demonstrating what you want them to embody and and literally live with their employees and their teams. And I think the other biggest thing that comes into that leadership behavior is the consistency of it. So think of think of all of us here, right? Mm -hmm. If Deb is fantastic at embodying those leadership behaviors that are necessary for that culture, and I'm horrible at it, right? Deb's part of the organization could be really thriving. And then my part of the organization be really struggling right so i mean it's not just what are those behaviors but how is everybody doing with those and how consistently are they demonstrating and living and believing those right yeah i'm afraid i can't help myself to have to throw in an anecdote here i'm going to remove all the names 
because I wasn't personally present and don't know if it's factual, but it, it sounds perfect. There was a CEO of a very large consulting firm who went with his right-hand man up to the uh, mountain where Stephen Covey lived and to have a you know discussion with Stephen Covey about the seven habits and all the, all the things that Covey was so famous for. And Stephen Covey looked at the CEO and he said, filling the name here, do your people trust you? Absolutely. Trust me completely. In the background, his aide is going, uh-uh, uh-uh, and Stephen Covey sees this. Do your people trust you? Absolutely. They said, no, uh-uh. And he looks around, and so the CEO sees this and goes, what? Who, why want their names? Who are they? That's good. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's actually true, but it uh, it matches everything I know about that organization and the people involved. Uh. <laughs> it's like it's like that old um, cartoon that said that the uh, the beatings will continue until morale improves. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to hand over here to Narendra to take take us through the next couple of questions here. So, uh, if you're ready, Narendra, go for it. Sure. So, Deb and Hill, I want to kind of add a couple of different dimensions to our conversation here. The first one I want to talk a little bit about was about diversity and inclusion, right? Many organizations are taking this pretty seriously these days. Yet, I personally wonder, you know, some, there are not as many success stories out there. Is it because, I wonder, is it because they treat it more as a compliance obligation or a corporate social responsibility initiative? Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on how, what do you feel about that? Deb, do you want to go first? You want me to? I can go. I'm touching that one with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think Narendra, first of all, I think from a DEI perspective, a lot of organizations, it's been something that they have been maybe aware of. Okay, some of them maybe not as much, depending on the industry. I think many of them have said, okay, we're going to do all of these things. Da, 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 da. Here's these long lists of things. And I think the importance and where you're seeing, okay, oh, do we see those success stories? Is, is it a check the box activity or is it something that truly is something that is embedded within that organization's culture and mission and values and belief system that it is something that is important to set organization, right? And that's when that type of change from a DEI culture perspective is so difficult. It takes a long time, but it also requires continued focus and work there. And I think a lot of organizations want to kind of say, okay, we've we've we hired this person, right? We've done, we've done this, check, check, check. Okay, we should be, we should be good, right? But really it's a continuous learning journey for that organization for it to really be something where at the other end you can say like, okay, here are some of our great success stories. You know, and so when I think about kind of variety of clients and a variety of industries, there's really kind of a balance between the two. And some of them are kind of are 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 kind of checking the box, you know, and others of them are really trying to do it the right way. I mean, to be perfectly frank, think about like how long it took, you know, women to have the right to vote, for example, right? We're talking about things that are going to take a very long time and continued focus for organizations, I think, to really be at a point where they can they can truly say they're proud of where they are from a DEI perspective. And I, I think about even some of like 
the organizations in, in the US who I would say are kind of leaders in this space. And they're still, and I, I won't mention any names, but but they're still like, we still have work to do. <laughs> it's kind of that it it's not over. So I don't know, Deb, anything you'd agree or disagree or add? Yeah, I was thinking about what you said there, Hill, about the series of activities, right? So people sometimes confuse activities. If I just do enough of them, then I'll get the business outcomes or results. And that's probably the wrong frame. And the other thing that Hill said is journey. I mean, it's, this is not a you've ever arrived kind of topic. This is a constant, you know, we're striving to create the right kind of culture, which includes the right emphasis and focus on diversity, equity, inclusion. We, we, we look, act, and reflect the cultures and the communities and the clients we serve. That's a continual goal. And I think it's a, actually a great example of sometimes when it, like just like any business initiative, again, it's on a wall or a poster. It's like, oh, here's our top five priorities. But when you go and look at how much energy an organization puts behind it, that tells you how critical it is. Are we funding this? Are we asking our leaders to devote time to it? Are we holding people accountable? And even more importantly, are we selecting leaders based on how they act and show up in these spaces that we say are critical? Because fundamentally, if we're not making big business decisions based on what we say is important to us, then you have that mismatch, again, between our espoused values and what we profess and our actual actions. So it's it's a great it's a great topic that can you can very quickly when you go into it, a client situation, you just look at the spend. You look at where people spend their time, their energy against what they say they uh, is critical and you can see if there's a gap or not. Yeah. No, that's great. I've been doing some reading on this and one of the things that comes up is they're related to business growth, performance, how you create value, right? So is do you think it would work better if organizations actually make it as one of their pillars of business strategy, in addition to treating it as like a checkbox or <laughs> as an obligation, right? I think it's necessary. Uh, the data is there and has been there. The organizations that are more diverse in all ways you can think of have better business outcomes and results. So if for no other reason than you want to have a stronger company, I hope there's a more of a reason, but if for no other reason, it's like, why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you think about this? The research is there. It's like more women that are in executive roles or who serve on corporate boards, those companies make better decisions and have better results. I mean, it's why ignore the data? I second that, Deb. To be perfectly frank, if, if an organization doesn't have it embedded into their overall company strategy, I think it means a couple of things. One, it's not a focus. And two, they're not going to make improvements on it. And three, frankly, they're a little bit kind of behind from a, from a talent perspective of when people are looking at organizations and what would draw them to it, right? You're comparing two offers between, you know, organization A and B, right? B doesn't have, it's clearly not there, right? It's not a focus. Folks are going to keep picking company A. Eventually, those who are kind of the laggards, right? It, it's it's going to come back and it's going to show in their business results. So switching gears a little, let's talk about the influence of social media, right? There are many ways you could use social media platforms to like positively influence and promote the organization culture. 
However, sometimes, you know, a misstep in instituting change, a cultural change, could also prove disastrous because of the implications. If you do something wrong, it could go viral and you get all kind of feedback. Do you think organizations are being more cautious today, given the influence of social media on how they're going about bringing change, cultural change? Now, that's an interesting question. I, I was, I was thinking about social media probably in two veins too. A company's internal social media, and how they coordinate and communicate. You know, with, with various tools, Yammer, you know, Teams, other things like that, and their external or public-facing social media. I, I definitely think there's the opportunity for missteps. But I, I think when a company's social media strategy is well thought through and executed, it actually brings a, a degree of humanity and authenticity to who that company actually is. And people are more forgiving when they feel a connection. So even if there is a misstep, they're very suspect when they see a disconnect between, again, what, what we say we care about and how we actually show up and act with the public. So I feel like as long as there's that continued focus on what we say and what we're doing, people, people can forgive and move forward. So it's the haphazard social media approaches that are kind of get clients into trouble a little bit. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing too, Narenda, that folks just every every organization kind of grapples with is is from an employee perspective is that personal social media versus professional social media. We have an organization right now where there's some talk around you know kind of using LinkedIn, right, and and LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Folks are kind of saying, well, that, that's my network. That's not your network. And so there's, I think, also just kind of the dichotomy of organizations having to kind of play that out and figure out what works best for their organization because there's there's so many different platforms, you know, um, that you can you could possibly go down and then kind of just trying to balance that between what's what do you want to use professionally versus personally and where where do your employees kind of fall within there. And I think that's why also, you know, so many organizations that you know they're really trying to have some type of I'll call it a social media policy because that's all going to be aspects of demonstrating an organization's culture, however it's being, you know, potentially presented. Yeah, no, that's a great perspective. Thank you. Back to you, John. Okay. One last question to, to take us take us home here. Looking for examples, cases that you've seen. Have you ever seen a company make a deliberate cultural change with an anticipation of a change to the bottom line at the end? Well, it's, it's interesting, John, usually when organizations want to make a culture change that affects the bottom line, you know, it's, it's usually to improve it, right? Mm -hmm. You can actually have organizations that make, I'll call it negative culture decisions that will in turn help the bottom line through a more of a natural exit of people, right? So, so there could be something that is negative within their culture that they're going to kind of continue to push or play so that they can, they, they're affecting their bottom line and improving it, maybe, maybe not necessarily through the best methods. And I've seen that. And then I've also seen the flip side where you're trying to improve your culture because you, for, for I'll call it the, the betterment of the organization, right? And the employees, and it's actually improving it. So I've seen it in both places. I've seen it play out in both cases. I don't know, Deb. Yeah, I there's an example that comes to mind, which 
in this case, the, the desired business outcomes were not financial. They were striving to drive an increased culture of safety awareness and I would say incident mitigation or avoidance. And so question facing this company is how do we get employees to not only take ownership for their work processes, their standards, you know, kind of what's in their line of sight, but also feel safe and comfortable raising the alarm bells if they see something that's off. And so the the challenge really was, well, what is preventing people from speaking up and speaking out? What has historically happened and how have people been reinforced or rewarded for speaking up or or not that we have to really kind of untangle and unpack if we want to shift their behavior and ask them to do something different. I mean, it really was the heart of this company's, you know, future survival strategy, because if they could not figure out how to do this, they were going to, they were going to continue to have massive safety incidents that impacted their, their customers, their consumers, their communities. And so it was, it was an imperative that they start to look at this and they're on a, probably they're on their third or fourth year of this journey. And I'm not as close to them as I was a few years ago, but I think they're making progress. So it is definitely, you know, the company culture is the thing that we must shift and change if we want to survive. So I, I will throw in an example, and I can use an actual company name because this is in a published book. Herman Miller, the, the office furniture company, this is in the book Good to Great, which I think was written like 89 or 91, so it's antique at this point. But, you know, they, they realized that there's a lot of waste involved in what they did. Is there, there are a lot of environmental impacts of what they were doing. One of them was the waste, and they've actually instituted a program where basically anything you ship to them, you have to arrange for taking away all of the packing which was great. And that's you can say that's a procurement decision. But another one that they did was they realized that a lot of the furniture they made used rare hardwoods from rainforests. And they said, okay, this is not, this doesn't match our values, doesn't match our culture, who we want to be. We have to do something different about that. And so they went through a whole program of trying to find alternate woods and so on. And they, I think they were aware all the way along that it was going to have a you know, it's certainly a cost impact. It was certainly an investment to go try to find alternate woods. And you could put it a couple different ways. One is they might have realized those woods were going to go away and they needed to find an alternate source. That's fair enough. But I think the other was they knew that there it was it was worth the long term of being able to position themselves to consumers as well as their employees as we are a, a conservation-minded company. But I think that's one example of a company trying to institute culture or a cultural change. In this case, directly related to a product. But, you know, that was something where they knew there was a, a business impact at the end. Does that spur any other thoughts, any other examples to your mind that you've read about over the years? Well, I'm smiling because I just had a Herman Miller chair delivered this week. <laughs> And now I want to go look at the wood and that make sure that it is still uh, sustainably and responsibly sourced. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, check um, on that. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, I, you know, just connecting this back to our earlier conversation about DEI, I think sustainability and environmental awareness, aware, awareness and responsibility is just as much in a business imperative today as it as is DEI. Uh, because not only talent and employees are looking for companies that match their values, but consumers are too. And a company that comes to mind for me is Owens Corning here in Ohio. Um, they, I think they were early to get on to, you know, a kind of a, a zero waste green factory, you know, kind of clean factory 
type strategy and they are a leader. I mean, and you can see that as part of their branding, as part of their identity, um, and they invest heavily in it. There are some companies that caught the <laughs> caught the wave earlier than others, but it's definitely, if, if it's not table stakes today, it has to be, I think it should be. So for both of you, any last thoughts about connecting culture to delivery? I think I think the one thing that always when I'm working with clients on culture and you know kind of thinking about the the balance between kind of culture and delivery is a quote that always kind of comes to mind is kind of we have met the enemy and he is us and I think you just have to always kind of know don't uh, don't shoot yourself in the foot kind of thing that's something that I think I see oftentimes organizations uh, end up kind of messing themselves up. And I think from a from a delivery perspective, you know, especially when I think about our folks going out into these organizations and, and the projects and the things that they deliver, that's that's something that we always have to just navigate. All right. Well, thank you for the Pogo reference. Haven't heard from those in a little while. Uh, Deb, anything you'd like to wrap up with? Well, it's a take on a JFK quote. Look not at what <laughs> your company can do for you, but what you can do for your company. And I think it's very similar to Hill. It's, it's you know, the change process always starts at an individual level. The choice about how we behave and how we show up starts at an individual level. The shadow of a leader, the more senior you get in the organization, the greater influence, the greater shadow you cast, and the greater power you have in actually moving things more quickly. So I think that, you know, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us, you know, change starts with me. That's the single most powerful thing people can do to shift culture is to look at their own values and be beliefs and behaviors and say, am I acting in accordance with what our company uh, values and how we want to be? And that's a daily challenge. Um, but that is the secret sauce in my, in my mind. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been Couch Convos. Thanks to Deb, Hill, and Narendra for joining our panel today, and thank you for listening. 